Hey, would you turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 12? We're going to be, uh, uh, take the uh, second look at uh, our series on the, the faith of Abraham. Abra uh, Abraham, uh, we saw last week uh, in the first part of the chapter. We're going to go to the end of the chapter here, beginning with verse 10. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. I'll invite you to stand as we delve into God's word this morning. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say, you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman, and when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram very well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, what have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men. They sent him on his way and with his wife and everything he had. Well, that's an interesting story. May God add his blessing to his word. You can be seated. Have you ever felt like you've gone three steps forward, two steps back? A lot of times the, uh, the Christian life can, can feel like that. And let me just say, Satan right off the bat would have you believe that, you know, if you fall in the Christian life, you're finished. You're, you're no good. You start with doubt and, and you can't be restored to, to faith. You stumble into sin and you can't know redemption. Or Satan might try the opposite. He'll law you into the opposite extreme of believing that, you know, sin doesn't really matter. You can live as you please and, and God's grace will cover you. And yet what we see in Scripture is the Bible makes it clear that the Christian life is a gift. It is a gift of grace, but there is an expectation of growth and maturity. We are given salvation absolutely free of charge Jesus paid it all we don't earn it but the fruit of that salvation is increasingly that we are going to be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus we are going to become as he is more holy more righteous however sometimes we take three steps forward and then a couple of steps back 1 John 2.1 reads, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now you'll note that last week we looked at the call of Abraham and we saw a tremendous demonstration of faith. This man who barely knew God, who did not really know who he was, God comes to Abraham and makes him a promise to make him a, a great nation. And Abraham believes God and follows God, and he leaves his home in Ur and goes to the place where God will show him, even though he had no idea where that might be. But 
we quickly move in this passage from Abraham as the brave pioneer of faith, and suddenly he shows us that he is the prototypical person of doubt. You know, it's one thing to get to the promised land. It turns out it's something else to stay there. You know, it's one thing to get to the promised land. It's another thing to stay there. You know, when, when we come to know God, don't be surprised that Satan will, with full force, do everything he can to get you out of there. He's going to disrupt and distract and convince you that you've got to figure this thing out for yourself. And it can become a mess. And we see evidence of that here. So Abraham is living in a tent in Canaan. He's in the promised land, but a famine comes along. Again, I, I just have to note, just because we walk by faith does not exempt us by any measure from the hardships of life. Nowhere does the Bible say, if you just trust God, you're going to be healthy. You're going to be prosperous. All your children are going to grow up to be Ohio State Academic All-Americans or something like that. On the contrary, Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. That's verifiable. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. So for Abraham, he follows God to Canaan, but he experiences difficulty, a famine. The rain doesn't fall, the sheep are getting skinny, the crops aren't growing, and he sees no relief in sight. And where's God? Charles Stanley wrote, when God is silent, there is only one reasonable option. Hang in there and trust him. He may be quiet, but he has not quit on you. Well, Abraham, he grew restless. And the Bible says Abraham went down to Egypt, no doubt, because that's where the water was, that Egypt contained the great Nile River and all its tributaries. And so Abraham reasoned, you know what, I better start taking things into my own hands. And by the way, that's going to be a theme in Abraham's life, and it's going to cause trouble from time to time. He is often going to try to fix things without listening to God. Now, as he's about to enter into Egypt, he has what I think must have been a rather awkward conversation with his wife. Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Now, that started off pretty good. I think, okay, so far, so good. And yet, when the, he says, when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say that, that you're my wife, and they're going to kill me and let you live. And then things get going south pretty quickly. It's amazing to me, Abraham is afraid the Egyptian leaders so pressed into to expanding their harems that they're going to want to kill me to get you, Sarah. And so his temporary, simple solution suddenly becomes much more complex. And he enters into this worldly system which abuses women, and uses them as something to be acquired and owned. The, type, the Bible talks about getting entangled with sin, and, and we see as Abraham goes down to Egypt, he gets entangled there. And so he does what many do when they face an uncomfortable circumstance. He lies. 
probably most of us know what that feels like. How many of us have been caught in that moment? You know, we say, well, the check's in the mail. Or my speedometer must be off. I'd love to come to your child's recital, but I've got a funeral that day. Um, I'd like to try your spam casserole. I'm just full. Someone said, a lie is an abomination to God, but a very present help in times of trouble. Abraham resorted to deception to save his own skin. But what about Sarah? He stoops to this cowardly lie, even willing to sacrifice his wife's own virtue. And the reality is, I don't think their relationship was ever the same again. The faith and trust that they would have shared together, I think, was severely damaged. And I think we're going to see evidence of that as we look further into Abraham's story. Because this is what I know of sin. Sin is never an individual act. When we engage in sin, whatever form it is, it never just stops with me. It impacts the people I love, whether I'm willing to acknowledge that or not. Oh, Abraham could justify himself. Well, you see, you know, in fact, she really is my half-sister. And boy, do we justify sin and we figure out a way to do it. But the reality was he was deliberately trying to mislead and it hurt others significantly. Because sin always exacts a very high price. And by the way, you're not the only one paying it. Verse 15 says that Sarai, when they got to Egypt, was noticed she was soon taken into Pharaoh's palace. Pharaoh, in turn, treats Abram very well. He gives Abraham sheep and cattle and donkeys and servants and camels. Once, once again, I, I just have to take note here, we're confronted with the truth that, you know, material possessions in themselves are not a good thermometer of our spiritual condition. Adversity doesn't mean that God is displeased with you, and prosperity doesn't mean that God is pleased with you. I think of Jesus in Luke 22 when he talks about the man with so many crops that he had to build so many more barns, and Jesus called him a fool. He didn't know. So deep inside, Abraham must have been experiencing mental anguish and a sense of guilt at what was occurring. He had put his own wife in a terrible situation. He knew he was accept accepting all of, these, all of these goods under false pretenses. But it doesn't take very long before the Lord intervenes. And Pharaoh and his household begin to suffer a very serious set of diseases and we're not exactly told how Pharaoh puts all of this together but I'm guessing that every time he tried to take a, to make a move on Sarah in the harem he suddenly got ill he suddenly got violently ill stomach ache a headache whatever it was and he realizes that something is wrong so Pharaoh summons Abram and says what have you done to me why didn't you tell me that she was why did you tell me she was your sister when she's in fact your wife? And so Abraham is exposed. 
as a liar and his credibility as a witness for God is nil. I don't know, maybe you've been following along. I, I haven't followed it terribly closely, but to some degree, I've been interested in the saga of Congressman George Santos. Do you know that name? Congressman from New York. He was elected recently. And man, has he been exposed as a serial liar. The list of lies is longer than I can recount. He lied about where he went to high school and lied about where he went to college. He lied about where he has worked. He lied about being Jewish. He said, well, I meant I was Jewish kind of thing. He lied about his grandmother being a victim of the Holocaust. He never worked on Wall Street. He lied about starting an animal charity. And, and, and the list just keeps going on and on. It seems wrong that someone with so little capacity for truth is allowed in Congress and then you realize it's Congress. The, the word begins with con, right? And so maybe there's a connection. But Abraham is exposed here. He's a liar. And look at what Pharaoh says. Here's your wife. Take her and go. And Abraham leaves with everything that he was given. Now, to be honest with you, that's a little bit surprising to me. I would have expected to read that Abraham was executed and Pharaoh kept his wife, or that Abraham or, was told to go, but Sarah had to stay. But I do want you to notice, in spite of Abraham's stupidity, Abraham and Sarah are both protected. God was still gracious and kind. Not only were they released untouched, but Abraham gets the benefit of all the, the riches from Egypt too. And in fact, I, it occurred to me, you know, that might just be a foreshadowing of what is to come when the Israeli slaves leave Egypt. And you remember they take all the wealth of Egypt with them, the plundering of the Egyptians. But it's clear only divine intervention can prevent tragedy and turn it into triumph. God's kindness is seen here. But what are the lessons that we learn in a story like this? Well, one of the lessons I think has to be and I think it's important to review this here, is that a person of faith can and will be able to do wrong. When the pressure was on, Abraham was tempted to lie. Some Christians have this notion that if we're really people of faith, they will reach a point where they're not going to be tempted to do wrong anymore. And I'm going to tell you that's a foolish error. Regardless of how great your faith is, regardless of how far you've gone in your faith, you will still always find the world alluring. Egypt is going to look like the logical thing to do. Lying will seem like wisdom. Impurity can seem like an advantage. Remember, Jesus himself faced temptation. From the moment he began his ministry there in the wilderness, he was tempted three times. To the end of his ministry, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was tempted not to go to the cross. 
Having strong faith does not exempt you from facing the appeal of Egypt. It's always going to be there. It's always in front of you. Satan is always going to try to bring you down. 1 Peter 2, 1 to 11 reminds us, Dear friends, Peter says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. He's out to get you. He wants you to die. Before Christmas, I got a very nice card from Betty Keaton. Some of you know Betty. She's, she's one of our shut-ins and hasn't been here for quite some time. So it was really nice to hear from her. But in the, the card, it contained a rather sizable check for our building or our, our uh, generations campaign. And normally, if someone gives me a check, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like that and I don't recommend it at all, but I always try to hurry to the safe and deposit it so I don't lose it. But given the moment, for some reason, I remember lying, laying that uh, card down and the check on my desk thinking, well, I need to get to that later. Well, sometime after Christmas, I was going through my stack of cards and I came across Betty's card, but to my horror, I realized there was no check. And I began a search, and I searched under and over and everywhere in the room. I looked through all my books, thinking, did I do it? Could I have thrown this thing away? I was just sick to my stomach. You, you know what that feels like, I suspect. Well, think, thinking maybe I had forgotten that I had actually put it in a safe, I asked our finance secretary, if you see it come through the offering, please let me know. Well, for two weeks, I waited, and she said, no, we, we didn't see it. So I knew I had to make a call to Betty. I knew that I needed to tell Betty what I had done, and that just made me sicker to my stomach. Uh, you know, I don't want to have to do this. And I put it on my list of things to do, and, you know, every day I found something else to do rather than call her. And so it was on my list, but on Tuesday I said, you know what, I'm going to do it tomorrow. Wednesday's coming. I can't let this continue on. I've got to take care of this. Well, finally, on Wednesday morning, I gave her a call. But I want you to know how many temptations went through my mind of how I could blame someone else for what occurred, how it was lost in the flood, you know, with the sprinklers and all, or how I gave it to Pastor Rich and he somehow lost it or threw it away. All those things, a whole host of things. But you know, I called Betty and I said, Betty, I don't know how to tell you this, but I think I lost your check. Well, she says to me, what, what do you mean? I see it was cleared. Well, first I'm relieved. I'm really relieved. And then suddenly I realize she's wondering if I'm trying to scam some more money out of her. No, she really wasn't, but she did relieve me. Apparently, I had just forgotten altogether I had put it in the safe and how silly I would have felt if I had lied about it. Or certainly, um, we're going to get a new finance secretary. I must be, I'm kidding about that, but that was mean. Okay, okay. What's your temptation? It, it may be to lie. It may be the lusts of the flesh, or it may be a, sour attitude it might be a prideful spirit but it is a battle and you're engaged in it right now 
and you will be engaged in it your entire life. Now, I want you to see here, Abraham was not only tempted, but he did sin. And that's important, too, to recognize. When, when we judge ourselves or when we judge other people, sometimes we see Christians fall and we dismiss them entirely as phony. I think that's wrong. We say, you know, if they were for real, they would have never done that. How many of us would have given up on Abraham and just written him off if we had simply heard this story? We don't, we would not have expected him to be pegged as the, as the example of faith that he became. I want to remind you this morning, 1 John 1, 8, is written to Christians, is written to the church. And John says, listen, if, if we say that we have no sin, you're a liar. The truth is not in us. The truth isn't in you, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So a person of faith will be tempted and may in fact fall, but a person of faith can recover and be made whole again. Abraham was given another chance and he made the most of it. He became the father of the faithful. And I just wonder this morning, am I talking to some folks who are in Egypt today? Maybe you became a Christian years ago. You had a remarkable experience with God. It was real, but somewhere along the way, you've gone backwards and not forwards in your faith. And along the way, you've hurt some people. Along the way, you've made some mistakes. Along the way, you've, you, you, you've got back taxes that you owe or broken wedding vows, disillusioned family members, broken-hearted church friends, and you wonder, is there any hope for recovery? And I discovered, you know, the story of Abraham is good news. Jesus Christ waits to call us back. Now, let's think about what Abraham had to do to recover. Genesis 13, 1 says that he left Egypt. And that reminds me, you know, when you've parked yourself in Egypt, the first thing you need to do to recover, to repent of your sin, is get out of Egypt. Turn away from it. The old country preacher used to say, if you don't intend to go in the house, stay off the front porch. And so Abraham got out of Egypt. But I also think chapter 13, verse 2 is important. He went to a place called Bethel where his tent had been earlier and where he had built an altar to the Lord. And the Bible says there he called out to the name of the Lord. In other words, Abram went back to the place where he had known him where he had worshipped him. He got back into the groove of doing the right things, pursuing God. Revelation 2, 4, you remember it talks about leaving your first love. And some of us have left him. The Bible says return and do the things that you did at first. 
Start, start going to church again. Regularly read the Bible. Sing like you mean it. Have fellowship with Christian people. Don't get into this position where you just continue to focus on your failure. God says, I have buried it in the deepest sea and I'm going to remember it no more. It's been paid. Jesus paid it all. And you know, failure, failure can be turned into something good. You know, failure has a way of humbling us. Failure has a way of making me more sensitive to others and less prideful. Failure has a way of giving us a teachable spirit. Failure has a way of reminding us, man, if I don't depend on him, I get nowhere. See, a personal faith doesn't mean you're not tempted, and it doesn't even mean that you may not fail, but a person of faith can recover and maybe this is your day where you need to look at yourself and through the power of your Holy Spirit say I need to get on board I need to move forward this morning I need to get out of Egypt but listen to me here this is also another important lesson <laughs> it's better to not fall at all See, I don't want to give you the impression this morning as I preach this message that your sin doesn't matter. Everyone falls. Don't let it bother you. Everyone sows their wild oats. They're just young. It'll be okay. No. The experience of Abraham should teach us that sin, in fact, leaves a scar. Every sin, yes, can be forgiven of the eternal consequences, but sin has a way of leaving a blemish, a scar, a hurt, a pain, and that cannot be taken away. I want you to consider the earthly consequences of Abraham's sin. He, he certainly brought dishonor to the name of Jehovah in Egypt. He left with their wealth, but he didn't leave a witness there. And what's remarkable to me, if you read Genesis 20, you discover that Abraham actually repeats the same transgression. He goes before the king of Gerar and he lies again about Sarah being his sister. That's incredible to me. And yet, if you think about it, it makes complete sense. Because once a sin is committed, it's so easy to do it again. You can say, you know, I'm going to just try this once as an experiment. And when you're finished, God, I am so sorry. But the second time is so much easier once that boundary has been crossed. The second lie is easier. The second drink is easier. The second rendezvous is easier. The second website is easier than the first and the third is easier than the second. You've heard this before, but I think it's worth repeating. Somebody said, sow a thought, and you reap a deed. You sow a deed, and you reap a habit. You reap a habit, and you reap a character. And you reap a character, and you reap destiny. Abraham did it again. And he had to live with that weakness as part of him for the rest of his life. 
But you know, there's something even more serious, it seems to me, when you examine Abraham and the effect of this lie. Yes, he did it again, but I would argue it affected his children, most certainly his marriage. I was thinking about, remember in the passage in the Old Testament that says that the sins of the father will be visited upon the third and the fourth generation? By the way, I don't think that means that if you sin, God is going to come down and zap your great-grandchildren. That's not what's being talked about here. What that means is, is your children are going to have a way of emulating the evil in your life and actually magnifying it. It's, it's going to reproduce. You know, if you read Genesis 26, Abraham's son Isaac, he too faces a famine. <laughs> Guess what he does? He goes to Gerar, verse 7. He does the same thing with his wife, Rebecca. Tell them you're my sister. And he repeats the sin of his father. Now, I don't have time to develop all of that this morning, but I do want you to know those, those issues that we don't deal with, our sin follows, follows us more than we know. And without God's grace and redemption and working in our life, that sin just gets passed down, one to the next. So this is what I want you to know. There's something better than going to Egypt and coming back. There's something better than being the prodigal son who returns to the father's home from the far country. And that's staying at home in the first place. This morning, God wants you to consider where are you? Maybe things are dry. Maybe it's tough. Maybe you're tempted to just give it all up. I'm going to tell you, keep trusting him. Even when it's tough. Jude 22, one of my favorite verses, this, this phrase there, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. You see, salvation is not there just to keep you from, from or, or to rescue you from that moral pit. True salvation is there to prevent you from falling in the first place. And he wants to do that in your life. And so I invite you this morning to consider where you are with God. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He says, my faith rests not in what I am, or what I shall be, or feel, or know, but in what Christ is, in what he has done, and what he is doing in me. What's he doing in you this morning? May keep moving you forward, keep listening to him, keep trusting him. He's good. Let's pray. Father, as we consider these words and we consider this sin of Abraham we also Lord want to look at examine ourselves and Father I confess to you that sin often 
has a much greater impact than what I ever thought possible. I pray, Lord, that in your mercy and your goodness and your kindness, you would call us back to yourself. That, God, if we've taken some steps toward Egypt, that we would turn around, that we would discover and rediscover our first love, and we would, Lord, do the things that we first did in pursuing you and in knowing you. And yes, even when the famine comes, even when those times come, Lord, when it feels so very dry, we could know that you are trustworthy. Lord Jesus, speak to our hearts. Lead us to yourself. Keep us from falling because we've decided today to follow you with our whole hearts. I pray this in your precious name.